And so as we've seen from the book of Colossians, uh, it's so important. It makes such a big difference to our Christian life to know that Jesus is the supreme and the sufficient one. And remember, what we said about Jesus being the supreme one really means is that he is the one with whom the whole world must reckon. He is the one who created all of us. He holds all things together in his hand, and he governs princes and sets up kings and strikes down kingdoms and rules the mundane affairs of our everyday lives, and there is no one to whom we must otherwise answer to. And it means that Jesus is the sufficient one. That means that he is the one to whom we can go to be completely declared righteous in his sight, that there is no one to whom we must uh, add to him or nothing we can do to add to the sacrifice he has made on our behalf to give us a spotless record of righteousness in his name. And so there's no one else to whom we may go or no one else to whom we must go to have this righteousness imputed to our account. And you see, Isaiah will help us to understand and love this truth, to, to really savor it more deeply by showing us that God is glorified. God is glorified in caring and saving his people. God gets glory. That means he's uh, shown to be worthy of the highest admiration of praise. He's shown to be worthy of uh, the highest magnification that we could possibly give to him. God gets glory in the way that he reaches down to us and carries us from the womb to old age and saves us from our sin. And because we live as believers in the new covenant, we have a picture of all the good promises of God and we have an understanding of who God is for us in Jesus that is better, that is better than believers in the old covenant had. Yet, Isaiah will help us to see this truth and to savor it more deeply by showing us uh, God's glory in this, that this has been the story of, that he has been writing from Genesis and will continue to write in our lives until the consummation of the age when Jesus comes again. And it'll help us to look to Jesus, to find in him the resources to live faithfully for him, to have hope, and to experience the joy of our salvation. And so just a one word or a one sentence way to kind of encapsulate what I think the message of Isaiah 46 is, is to say that God is glorified by accomplishing all of his purposes to carry and to save his people. So let's see it from the text. God is glorified, first of all, by carrying his people. And we see this in Isaiah 46, verses 1 through 7. So hear this. Bel bows down. Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are born as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop, they bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb. Even to your old age I am he, and to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made, and I will bear. I will carry and will save. To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god. Then they fall down and worship. They lift it to their shoulders. They carry it. They set it in its place and it stands there. It cannot move from place to place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble." We'll pause there for just a minute. Well, you see, Bel and Nebo were the pagan gods of Babylon. 
Bel was Babylon's chief deity. He's usually called Bel Marduk, and Nebo was said to be his son, the, the god of wisdom and the arts, and these were really the pride of the Babylonians. Um, every year, they had a festival, and they would carry these, or images of these gods in a great, big, huge parade to a shrine in the middle of the city, and probably this parade was very impressive. And the Israelites, the, the southern kingdom of Judah, they would have known about this parade, probably because of diplomatic contact, and it probably would have been the talk of of Jerusalem when it happened and, and all over the ancient Near East. And yet, as the mighty ba uh, city of Babylon celebrates its pagan deities, Yahweh, the true God, mocks them. He mocks their foolish trust. The animals that carry their idols are weary, and the Babylonians will not be saved by their impotent gods. And you see, this is an important thing for God's people to know. Isaiah prophesied to the southern kingdom of Judah at a time when they were hard-pressed by enemies on every side. The mighty Assyrian Empire threatened them, and, and Babylon too was on the rise, and, and threats to their safety and security seemed to come from every side. And, and they probably wondered, how could God's good promises that David's kingdom would never end possibly be true in the light of all that's going on in our world? And Isaiah's message to the southern kingdom of Judah was that they had forgotten who God really was. They had supposed that he was a God just like the pagan deities of other nations, promising protection and stability without a covenant relationship of love and faithfulness. But the reality is that our God is a covenant God. He does give us good promises, and these promises invite us to know him and reflect his image in our obedience to his covenant love and love for our neighbor. And when we don't believe God's good promises, we begin to trust in other things to make life right, to give us hope and joy. And this is what Judah had done. On the outside, sure, Yahweh was their covenant God, and the Davidic covenant was their national hope. But inside, they did not obediently respond to God's grace to them. They didn't love God or, or love their neighbors. So Isaiah proclaimed that judgment was coming. But this did not mean that the Davidic covenant was not true. It meant that God is not bound by our expectations of what he must do. And that is the point of God's covenant actions in the world. Uh, that, that God calls us into um, not a, a covenant where we can expect good things at his hand, but ignore him. Or we can expect that life will go on in the way that we expect it to go on and the way that we demand that it will go on without any regard to who God is. But that God, through his covenant, is always drawing us to know him more deeply, to reflect who we are as his children in the way that we respond to him in love and the way that we love one another. Now, the way that we know this, especially from the way that Isaiah is speaking to us, is to hear what he says about the difference between the pagan gods of Babylon and the true God of Israel. The pagan gods must be carried around by their people. They, they even have to be created by their people and at great cost. And for all that, they are immovable and deaf. Though it may seem for a moment that the pagan gods of Babylon are victorious over God's people, Isaiah prophesies about Judah's coming deportation at the hands of the Babylonians so that God's people will know that God himself, not the pagan gods of the mighty Babylonians, has done it, and no other. And unlike the pagan gods, God is the one who carries and made his people. God is the one who carries them from place to place. He is the one who bears them from the womb to old age. Every event in the life of his people is in the hand of God. The judgment of God, therefore, is not the end of God's good promises, but the proof 
they will always be true, despite our sin and despite our unbelief. God is so good and is so powerful that he can keep his covenant promises even when his people fail theirs. And though his judgment uh, may seem hard in the moment, through it he brings his people back to him and restores them in, in a relationship of joy and love. And as Isaiah shows, this makes God infinitely more glorious than the pagan gods. He is glorified by carrying his people because he alone protects them and provides for them. He works to redeem his people from our rebellion so that we will experience the promised blessing of his covenant love. And he is dependent on no one to uh, thwart his plan. He is dependent on no one to make it right. He controls all people, things, and events for the glory of his name and the good of his people. And we give God rightful glory when we act on this truth. We do not create him or carry him around. Rather, we give him glory and find our joy by looking to him alone to know how to live in every situation. We are not left to our own wits or resources to try to figure out life. We are not left to try to figure out how we are to act in every particular situation independent of God's uh, revelation to us, independent on who, of the fact of who we are in him, who we are as God's people. And this is the fact that never changes. God has made, he will bear, he will carry, and will save. Oftentimes I think we are tempted to uh, dismiss God's care for us because we want something more than merely looking to God. We want something more than merely praying or reading our Bibles or being faithful in worship. We think these things aren't really enough. It seems like we must do more to try to cultivate uh, the good things of God, to try to get God's promises to, to be true finally. It seems like worship just isn't enough at the end of the day. But when we think this way, it shows that in, in our thinking, maybe subconsciously, we actually do think there is some power after all in the false idols that we've made, that, that God really isn't enough, that he's not able to carry and save us like he promises to do. And we rob, God, we rob God of his glory, though, when we think this way. But we often do. We're quicker to, to do than to pray. Praying often seems like just some, some sort of thing that you've got to do to get out of the way at the beginning of the day if you're going to be halfway Christian, but you really want to get back to the things you're supposed to do. You know, you've got work to do, so get on with it. Or we're often morbidly introspective. We, we, we search within our hearts desperately to try to make ourselves better. We, we, we go over and over relentlessly mistakes we've made, or we, we try to find within ourselves the resources to be better than we are, uh, to, 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 to change ourselves, to make us in more and more into the image of Jesus without reflecting on his promises or even his word, without going to him in prayer, in humble reliance on his power, on his grace, to make us the way he wants us to be. And when we do this, we wear ourselves out. All the while, we hear no answer from our false gods, from the idols that we've made, especially the idols of self-sufficiency and, and of pride. But God's way is a better way. His glory is demonstrated by the fact that he carries his people from the womb to old age, from every uh, situation that we find ourselves in, from the, the very day that we are born to the very day when we go with him to be with him in glory in heaven. The resources we need to make it through life as his redeemed people come from him alone. They come as we behold his glory through his word and respond in worshipful obedience. The temptation is always to look to something else, whether a physical idol we've made or the idol of our own pride and self-sufficiency. But God calls us to look to him alone. And he says, who can compare with him? You know, any, any unconcern for the things of God, whether, whether it's by idol worship or 
by atheism, which is really just idol worship of our own reason and, and prideful self-sufficiency, or, or just sort of plain indifference to the things of God, it's really a fruit of, of the of willful blindness to the facts of our experience. When we think about it, we, we recognize who else carries us through life? Who else is responsible for the good that we have? Who else can respond to us in the day of trouble? So, the implication of saying that God is glorified by carrying his people is that in every situation, in every situation, there is no better place to go in our thoughts and in our minds and in our meditation than to the throne of grace. When we are discouraged and confused, when we are fearful and anxious, we must look to God alone. Looking to him means calling to mind who he is and what he has done. It means having great thoughts about God by remembering how he has made himself known. This is the heart and soul of worship. God is so powerful and God is so faithful and holy and his word is so true that as we set our minds upon him, he will not fail to answer us. And remember that worship, worship is transformative. How will we flourish and grow into the people God wants us to be? Well, in a word, by remembering that he carries us. God is glorified by carrying his people. So I ask you, you know, where, where do we go to find the resources to make it through life? Well, we'll remember that God is glorified by carrying his people. I particularly love the way that John Calvin uh, puts it in his commentary on Isaiah. He says, when God demands that his people shall listen to him, he shows that the true and indeed the only remedy for our distresses and calamities is, and I love this, to hang on his mouth to be attentive to the promises of grace. For then we shall have sufficient courage to bear every affliction. But if not, the way is open for despair, and we ought not to expect anything else than destruction. We ought to hang on God's mouth. And so again, we often suffer with the temptation to think that worship is not enough, that prayer is not enough, that knowing our Bibles is not enough to give us the resources to make it through life. But will we instead remember that God is glorified by carrying his people? This makes him very different than all the idols we could possibly make with our own hands. It makes him very different from all the false gods in the world which offer us something that we must do in order to make it through life, that we must do to get right with God and to live in a way that is glorifying to him. Instead, God calls us to remember that he is glorified by carrying his people. So we should hang on his word, hang on his mouth, as Calvin says. Well, let's turn again to the text and be reminded that God is glorified also by accomplishing all his purposes. Let's hear it from the text. Picking up in verse 8, God says, Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. Well, this raises a question for us immediately right off the bat, and I think it's this. Where do we go, where do we go to find hope in the, when our lives are full of trouble, in the day of trouble? So in these verses, God now adds further proof that he alone is worth our total devotion, such that all of our thinking ought to be shaped by his word. He calls us to remember the former things of old. Now, there is a double meaning to this. 
Uh, in a certain sense, God is calling us to remember his acts throughout Israel's history, his acts throughout the history of redemption. This is the sense that um, Psalm 103 has, for example, when, when David encourages his soul in God by rem- reminding himself that the Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. So is, there's that sense in which God is calling us to remember what he has done, how he's revealed himself as the faithful Savior throughout Israel's history and throughout even our own history. On the other hand, God is also calling his people to remember how, in this instance, he has foretold them what is going to happen. Um, When this bird of prey, namely Babylon, comes and and carries them away into captivity, they should remember that he has told them about it long before they even knew it was coming, long before the event came to pass. And when they think of these two things, God's provision for them in the past and his control over the future, the lesson that they will draw is this. God moves decisively to accomplish his will. There is no one like God. No one can thwart his purposes. He declares the end from the beginning because he has made the end and the beginning. His counsel will stand because there is no one who can stand against it. Every event is in his hand. No one can thwart his purposes, stay his hand, or say to him, what have you done? And this makes God infinitely more glorious than idols, because nothing is outside of his control. Nothing is outside of his ability to redeem. This is the rock that enables us to stand firm when life is full of trouble and the good promises of God seem far away. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I I have purposed, and I will do it. So the implication of saying that God is glorified by accomplishing all of his purposes, is that in every situation there is no better place to go than to the throne of grace. There there we will meet with our God, who is making all things new. There we we will meet with our God, who who uses his disciplining judgment to bring his people back to him in love and joy. There we will meet with our God, who is powerful and mighty to save, and over every kingdom, There there we will meet with a God who is bigger than the problems at work, bigger than the problems at home, bigger than our insecurities or doubts. He is able to bring his purposes to bear even when we cannot see how how he will do it. And remember that worship is transformative. How will we flourish and grow into the people that God wants us to be? Well, in a word, by remembering that he accomplishes all his purpose. God is glorified by accomplishing all his purposes. So John Bright, he wrote a good history of Israel, and he says, those who received Isaiah's words could never regard the nation's humiliation as Yahweh's failure, but as the exhibition of his sovereign and righteous power. Nor could the tragedy extinguish hope, for Isaiah had placed hope precisely beyond a tragic judgment, itself part of Yahweh's plan. What he's saying there is that When the people looked upon these words from Isaiah, and when they remembered that God is glorified by accomplishing all of his purposes, they would be strengthened. They would be encouraged to know that even as the city of Jerusalem was destroyed, even as the great temple in which God had dwelt as as a visible reminder that he was with them and that they were his people came crashing all around them, that they would be strengthened, as, as crazy as that might seem, that they would be strengthened to know that God had not forgotten his promises, that he was still with them because he had told them what was coming. This bird of prey from the east, it was going to come, and yet, and yet, that was not the end of his dealings with his people. 
because his, his love and grace for them was infinite, was as, as far as the east is from the west, as, as, as far as the, the heavens are above the earth. And so they would be encouraged and strengthened to know that God is nonetheless glorified in accomplishing all of his purposes because he carries his people. And what a great hope that is for us as we recognize that oftentimes things in this life just don't match up to the good promises that God has made to us, don't match up to who we know we were made to be and as his people, and sometimes don't seem to even match up with his claim to, to reign over all things. Like Hebrew, we've, we've mentioned it many times, Hebrews 2 says, God is reigning, but sometimes it doesn't seem like it, and oftentimes that's a reality for us too. And yet, how we ought to be strengthened by remembering that God is glorified by accomplishing all of his purposes, that nothing is outside of his hand, and nothing is, is lost on him. Nothing is beyond his ability to redeem. So God is glorified by accomplishing all his purposes. Well, let's, finally, let's see from the text that God is glorified by saving his people. Picking up in verse 12, God says, Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness, I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. Well, again, I think this raises a question for us. Where do we go to find peace and joy when we are overcome with the recognition of our sinfulness? You see, lest anyone object that God will finally be unable to deliver upon his promises owing to the sinfulness of his people, God here addresses us in blunt very blunt terms. It is true we are naturally far from righteousness. It is true we have stubborn hearts. But God is able to save his people because his salvation comes not by what we have done, but by his hand alone. And you see, this makes God infinitely more glorious than false idols because God is able to make his people his own despite our rebellion against him. God is so far from being immovable and deaf like other gods that he can make the unrighteous righteous. He is able to bring salvation to Israel for his glory and our joy. And you see also, God's salvation does not delay. He does not passively wait for you to make the decisive move towards him. He graciously comes to us and invites us to know him through his son, Jesus Christ. In Jesus, God has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us into into his kingdom. And we, re we respond not with works to try to improve our relationship with God, but with faith. And this, God, this faith glorifies God because it shows that he alone saves his people. And so again, the implication of saying that God is glorified by saving his people is that in every situation, in every situation, there is no better place to go in our thoughts and in our meditation and the things that we think about and the things that determine who we are as people than to the throne of grace. When we are overcome with the recognition of our sinfulness, God invites us to look away from ourselves and to him. He is the one who has brought salvation to us, not us. He laid the penalty of our sins upon Jesus, and he has credited Jesus' righteousness to our account. And there is no other God that we must answer to. There is no other judgment seat that you will stand before. If you are saved by God, you are saved completely and forever. Will we set our minds on this? Remember that everything you believe, we said this again many times before, it's almost becoming sort of uh, the language of Christ Community Church. Everything that you believe about the gospel is summed up in the moment when you sin. Do you run away from the throne of grace in a desperate attempt to try to make yourself better, to get a self-scrubbed image of God that you can go back to in the desperate hope that 
eventually he'll like you? Or do you run to the throne of grace in humility, saying, Lord, I need you. I don't have any intrinsic righteousness in myself. In myself, it's true. I am far from righteousness. It's true. I have a stubborn heart. But you are the one who gets glory by bringing your salvation to Israel. And you are magnified. You are shown to be great and worthy of the highest admiration of praise when your people come to you in humility and with faith and say, Lord, I need you. Save me. And that is the way in which we give God the glory. Not when we try to run away from the throne of grace and and the false and feeble attempt to try to carry our own gods around and make them like us by doing good things on their behalf. No, far from that. Instead, we give God glory when we come to him and say, Lord, help me. I need you. I believe you. I trust in you. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And remember, worship is transformative. How will we flourish and grow into the people God wants us to be? Again, in a word, by remembering that he saves us. God is glorified by saving his people. So John Oswald helpfully says this. He says, the whole point, the whole point of God's insistence that there is none like him is to show that he is the deliverer. We do not have here a philosophical treatise on monotheism and transcendence. What we have is an evangelistic proclamation. God is going to save you. How? Because that is his will, now and always has been. And no other being can prevent the realization of his saving purposes in the world. So, the great truth of this passage is that God is glorified by accomplishing all his purpose to carry and to save his people. This God reveals himself in Isaiah, uh, or rather this God that reveals himself in Isaiah, has been made known to us in the person of his son, Jesus. Jesus is the supreme and the sufficient one. By looking to God in his word, we are looking to see how Jesus helps helps us to know him better. And and right now, be encouraged by this, right now we, we see in a mirror half darkly at the best of times, but soon, very soon, we will see him face to face. And when we see him face to face, we will be transformed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. And that is how glorious God is. We are transformed the more we come to see and know him. So like I said at the very beginning, oftentimes we grow impatient. And oftentimes um, it's just hard for us to believe that that this, gathering together on Sunday mornings, as sometimes as as non-exciting as it sometimes can seem, as tired and distracted as we can sometimes be, or, or being faithful to read our Bibles throughout the week, or being faithful to know God's word so deeply that it, it is part of who we are and comes out in the moment-by-moment things that we do in the ordinary course of our lives, or meditating on over, over who God is for us in Jesus uh, when we take our showers in the morning, as we work throughout the rest of the day, and before we go to bed at night. Sometimes we just seem like, it's just not enough. I need to be doing more. And yet we see, especially um, from Isaiah 46, but really the whole course of redemptive history is showing us that God is glorified by accomplishing all of his purposes to carry his people from the womb to old age and to save them, to bring them into his righteousness, not because they have what it takes to make themselves commendable to God. We don't. But because he is glorified by reaching down to us in our brokenness, in our sinfulness, and showing us that he is the perfect deliverer. So we grab hold of this truth. We give God glory. We, we become the people that we were made to be uh, in light of who he is by, by responding to that in joyful obedience, by continuing on in perseverance. And in perseverance, what a, what, a, what a word that we oftentimes ought to more think more about. In perseverance, in the means of grace. 
by coming to the Lord and saying, Lord, I believe you. I believe that you are glorified by carrying me through the course of my life. I believe that you are glorified by uh, bringing me into your righteousness, not because of who I am or what I've done, but because of who you are. I believe these things, and so I'll continue on. I'll continue on in worship. I'll, I'll get to know my Bible really well. Uh, don't treat the Bible as just some sort of thing you've got to do every day to be a Christian. Treat it as the living word of God for you by which you come to know all that God is for you so that you see his glory more and more clearly uh, every day. And, and, and remember, the Bible is, is not like a, a thing where you read a chapter every now and then and then you've got the message and, and that's just the end of it. The Bible never changes, but we do. And we see all uh, the time more and more application for it because we're changing. We're being made more and more into the likeness of Jesus. And, and that just brings up all sorts of new avenues in, in which we can see God better and know how he comes to meet us in the various, and, 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 and thing, the various things that we face in everyday life and, and things that we didn't expect to see. So swim in the Bible because, not, again, not because you need to do it to get God on your side, but because God is glorified by carrying you from the womb to old age. God is glorified by accomplishing all of his purposes to carry and to save his people. And that's really the application. What do we learn from Isaiah 46, 1 through 13? Well, just that. God is glorified by carrying his people. God is glorified by accomplishing all of his purpose. And God is glorified by saving his people. Again, we've just finished up our time in the book of Colossians, and we've seen that Jesus is the supreme and sufficient one. That means that this is true of him. He is the supreme one and, and brooks no contenders. There is no one else to whom we must reckon. And he is the sufficient one. He is the one without whom we would be utterly lost and, and afraid and unable to draw near to God. But um, in the, the fellowship of him, uh, being united to him, there is no one else to whom we need to answer. There is no one else to whom we need to go to try to get right with God. And so God is glorified in Jesus by doing precisely this, by carrying us, by accomplishing all of his purposes, and by saving us. And what a good thing that is to know as we head especially also into the Advent season, as we will hear from the Gospel of John about how Jesus just is the, the perfect revelation of the Father's will for his people and is the one to whom we must go again and again throughout the course of our lives to know that God loves us, to increase our assurance of him that he is working all things together for our good. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that though we are far from righteousness, though we have stubborn hearts that sometimes just unbelievably almost uh, refuse to take hold of the good things that you've given us in your word, uh, are so slow to believe the good promises that you have given us, so slow to see how you are faithful to provide for us in, in everything, and slow, so, so slow to recognize that our salvation, our righteousness comes in no way else but in drawing near to Jesus. Yet, Lord, you are the faithful one. You have patience with us because you love us. So, Lord, help us to just be deeply impressed by the fact that you carry us, that you accomplish all your purposes, that you are the sovereign one who is able to, to carry us through the, the everyday course of our lives, to help us to know that there is nothing we need to fear because we can always remember that Jesus sits on the throne and that we can always go to him in humble reliance and, and humble faith, knowing that he is able to carry us through thick and through thin. So, Lord, help us to be often mindful of how you carry us, often mindful of your great power to accomplish all your purposes, and often mindful of your saving will for us in Jesus. And help, us that to, help that to deeply impact the way that we think about life so that we would love Jesus better, be transformed by his image, and love our neighbor better than we do. We ask this in his name. Amen.